And that has been with me. I've never questioned my abilities. Welcome to the Breaking Bias Podcast, formerly Diversity on Fire, the show where we explore the stories and experiences of people from all walks of life. We are on a mission to inspire new thoughts and dialogue in an effort to challenge bias and cultivate connection. I am your host, Heather, and joining the conversation today is Dr. Frank Douglas. Dr. Frank is a global thought leader and dedicated to providing impactful and life-changing solutions. His accomplishments range from over 24 years in the pharmaceutical industry, 16 years as the head of research, a CEO, board member, entrepreneur, and author of Defining Moments of a Free Man from a Black Stream, and the recently published Addressing Systemic Discrimination by Reframing the Problem. Welcome to the show, Dr. Frank. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. You are most welcome here, and I'm so excited to dive in and learn about all of your experiences. Before we get too far along, though, I do always like to start the show, uh, as we've talked about, by having you share a bit about your origin story. So we're talking about your formative years, well, your years before 25 years of age, basically. Things that impactful that might have happened, family dynamics, Things that really you feel like might have shaped your life. Well, I was born in Guyana, which is now, which was then British Guyana. It's now Guyana to a very poor, a poor family, a single mother with four uh, siblings. The five of us, of us lived in, in a single room, shared bathroom, shared kitchen with uh, other families that lived in similar single rooms. Uh, I was fortunate in that I was a good student, ended up uh, getting a scholarship to go to one of the private, uh, small private uh, secondary schools. You have to pay to go to secondary schools in uh, Guyana. Uh, and I did get a scholarship and then won a scholarship to go to the top. Uh, at that time, it was an all-boys school it's called Queen's College. Uh, I also, during that time, was very much involved in the evangelical church. And as a matter of fact, after I graduated from uh, high school and was working for uh, a year and a half or so, trying to raise money so that I could go abroad and study, uh, I actually was the director for the Youth for Christ movement for, in Guyana uh, during that uh, year and a half. I was quite fortunate in getting a Fulbright scholarship uh, to come to America. I actually came to America 60 years ago. On September 20th, 1963, actually eight days before uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's famous march uh, in Washington. So that's my background story. Okay. And yeah, so we're right, we're just a week or so away from that. 60 yes. year anniversary. And you you mentioned the um, March on Washington and the actual speech that he gave, the I Have a Dream speech, and you were there, is that correct? No, I was not there. I was actually um, at Yale on an orientation program oh. for, the, for, for the Fulbright Fellows and Scholars. 
And it was actually quite interesting. And the reason why this is so memorable for me is that three days after I arrived, I was supposed to make a presentation in the group I was in. And uh, I was uh, not feeling well, I had significant pain. I went to see the professor before the start of the session and explained to him that I was not feeling well and, in fact, needed to see a doctor. Uh, and he looked at me and said, you know, you black students are always finding excuses. Now you are a Fulbright scholar. You're going to have to learn to work hard to uh, earn that honor. Uh, I was stunned. Fortunately, I knew where to find the director of the program. I went to see him. He took me to the the, the Yale New Haven uh, Hospital, where I was immediately admitted and was there for 60 days. 60 days, sorry, I was there for 10 days. What was interesting is that after I was discharged from the hospital and on my way uh, to Lehigh University, which is where I did my undergraduate, uh, I learned that Martin Luther King had made this wonderful speech. And one of the things he said was, that he hoped one day that his children would live in a country where they would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Uh, and I had just, after being three days in America, been judged by the color of my skin and not the content of my character. Uh, that, uh, unfortunately, uh, was my introduction to something that surprised me, and that is racism in America. Uh, in the Guyana at that time, uh, America was this great, wonderful country where everybody is beautiful, wonderful, kind, thoughtful, ready to help everyone. So it was quite stunning to me to discover uh, this, uh, what I call the ugly side of America. What kind of, I want to call it whiplash almost, must that have felt like for you? It, or maybe maybe a better question is, how different was it from Guyana in terms of how you were treated just walking through, you know, a neighborhood versus coming here, how you were looked at and treated? Well, as I mentioned to you, I grew up in a very poor family uh, and uh, I never felt that I was poor. Uh, until I came to America. Uh, suddenly I realized that, uh, oh, we're really <laughs> very poor. Uh, people treated you with respect, even though you were poor. And uh, there was discrimination in Guyana, mind you, but it was not this, uh, what I would call, you know, this ugly, uh, vicious type of discrimination. You had discrimination in America, particularly for the fairer complexion, the lighter complexion, the uh, blacks uh, did tend to have greater opportunities to get certain types of jobs. But apart from that, there were almost no differences. So it stunned me when I, you know, about two weeks after I was here, uh, then discovered that as a matter of fact, there were churches I could not attend uh, because of the color of my skin. And as I mentioned to you, uh, I grew up in the, in the evangelical church. It, it is still a puzzle to me. It was then, and it's even more so now, 
because one of the things we always talked about was the, the one of the disciples uh, asking Christ, what's the greatest commandment? And Christ saying, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And without being prompted said, and the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So I grew up with that. <laughs> and you called it whiplash. It was, it was to say the least very confusing. As a matter of fact, uh, after two years in, uh, uh, in the U.S., I actually came down with an ulcer uh, as I was trying to really reconcile my religiosity with what I was learning and what I was seeing in America. Uh, I remember being in the hospital and the, uh, the doctor said, uh, is there anything that is bothering you? And I said, no. He said, well... This is unusual. You're a track star. You're a very good student. You're a campus leader. You don't smoke. You don't drink. And you have an ulcer. A couple of days after, as I lay in my bed thinking about this question, I suddenly realized that, as a matter of fact, I was spending a lot of time worrying about the way I grew up and the way uh, Christianity was taught to me, and particularly the evangelical brand of it. How do I reconcile that with what I'm seeing in America? And and how did you? Or are are you still religious? And if so, how did you reconcile that? Well, I didn't reconcile it. Interestingly enough, uh, the one person in uh, my life, one male. Uh, whom we called Uncle Willie, um, uh, who was very kind to my mother. In fact, at one point when I was about 16, invited us to come and live with him because he had a bigger place. Uh, he was probably the gentlest man I ever knew, the kindest man I ever knew. And as I lay in my bed, I suddenly said, you know, what I need to do is to be like Uncle Willie be kind to people, be generous, and uh, not to deal with organized religion because uh, I cannot make sense of it here. And that's what I did. I stepped away from organized religion and basically said that now I need to live my life based on the principles that I learned as I grew up and to be kind uh, to others, etc. That is, um, it's interesting to hear. I am in the same boat as you. I cannot reconcile that. I, I hold no uh, ill will against anyone who, who has religion of their own, but it's just something that I have not been able to come to terms with just because I find a lot of hate from people who, um, who seem to want to think that their way is the only way of life. Yes. I want to touch on, because we're talking about right now, early on in you being here. And I think when we hear about your experience with di discrimination then, even though it was not that long ago, um, oftentimes people will say, oh, well, we've come so far. So I wonder if you could share, because I know that your the discrimination and experiences that you faced are a big factor in the work that you're doing now. So I wonder if you can share some other specific experiences 
that happen over time and maybe even ones that are more recent if you have them? Well, I do. I, I, I do have many. And as, even though I tell people I, I, I tend to um, or I choose to think about the wonderful things that have happened. Uh, but I'll, I'll mention a, a couple, uh, one of which is very instructive because it uh, actually is involved in the recent book that I published and led me to it. Uh, after I completed my PhD at Cornell, I was hired by Xerox. And for three months, I could not get on a meaningful project. And one day, a young white man joined the group. He had not completed his PhD. In fact, he was writing his thesis. And within one week, he was placed on the most uh, desirable project that we had in research and development at Xerox. I went to see my boss to find out when I would get a good project. And after he, you know, went through the usual that I'd heard before, I suddenly said to him, you know, Steve, instead of thinking of me as though I'm Frank, think of me as though I'm Bob. And I was actually stunned to see almost a recognition come over his face as he said to me, you know, Bob has only been here a week and I've put him on the archery project. Well, I was furious. I ran out of his office, went to the senior vice president to give him yet another example of how I was being discriminated against. Now, a number of years later, I thought of that incident and realized that I'd missed two things. One was that senior vice president had hired three young black PhDs that summer to join the one black PhD that Xerox had at the time. So it probably was much more important to him that Frank Douglas would do well than it was to Frank Douglas. So I missed that. The second thing I missed was my desired outcome was to get a lot, was to get a good project, not for the senior vice president to have tough words with my boss. So had I, what I call reframed, had I reframed and had I said to the senior vice president, could you ask Steve, my boss, to find me a good project? I might have retired from Xerox because that was clearly within his sphere of influence. And could you imagine the senior vice president, three, four levels higher than my boss, walking into his office and simply saying, find the man a good project. That would have happened yesterday. So that began to help me to look at episodes of discrimination differently and try to reframe. I'll give you another example of this of discrimination, which uh, was another one of uh, of those life changing events. Uh, I was at uh, another company it, at that time. It was actually called Sibagaygi. It's no Bartis today, uh, and uh, uh, people are always surprised because uh, I, I call I, I call names and I don't <laughs> I don't take prisoners, <laughs> as they say. Uh, but, you know, these are the facts. And uh, uh, I, at that time, was the senior vice president and head of research for the U.S. And it was generally felt that I would succeed uh, Dr. Max Wilhelm, who was the global head of research and development and headquartered in Basel, 
uh, Switzerland. Uh, Novartis is a Switzerland company. And one day I got a call from uh, Max urgently for me to visit him in Basel. And the conversation was very brief. And he said, you know, you should be my successor. I will be retiring. However, because of your ethnicity, uh, you will not get that job. We don't think you'll be accepted in Basel, uh, nor do we think many members would accept that you would be on the, the board uh, of uh, the pharmaceutical company. Uh, I returned to the U.S. and talked uh, with the CEO of the U.S., my boss in the U.S., who confirmed. What ended up happening was, of course, my leaving and uh, becoming the head of research and development of a, uh, an American, a mid-sized American uh, company. There's a couple of things that I want to point out. Number one, it is clear and very impressive that you seem to always have been just your own advocate. You know, yes. and and I and I appreciate the thought when you think back, okay, how could this have gone differently? And I think that's important, right? So accountability for our part in every situation, even if we shouldn't have to address it in the first place. I also think just hearing about the positions that you held, that's also impressive because if we look at the dynamics now of leadership. It is, I mean, 2023, I don't want to give a number because I'm going to give a wrong number. It's a tiny, tiny percentage of leadership CEOs are Black. And that's correct. You, w- what we're talking about is years ago, and you were head of you know research and development, and you were already moving yourself into these positions. Do you feel like that Confidence came from, as you were growing up, this community, this idea that we may be um, lower class economically, but we're still humans because they didn't treat you less of because of that? I might be reaching. No, no, it's a very good question. One of the things that struck me when I first came to America is that in spite of all that was happening, I never felt less. I, I never, I never did. Uh, and it probably was because I was never treated as less, regardless of the economic, uh, you know, circumstances in which I grew, grew up. And that has been with me. I've never questioned my abilities, my capabilities. I recognized where I had strengths. I recognized where I had weaknesses. But not being a person of value and who can bring value and contribute to others or contribute. Uh, sometimes I pronounce things still in the old British way, sorry, but <laughs> who will contribute. That has never been a question, and that has been helpful uh, for me uh, because, uh, and I mentioned the, the Xerox uh, story, because that was really very important. It helped me to really accept something that very early I learned in America. It's called the serenity uh, prayer. At the time I learned it, uh, I learned it from uh, a man who uh, was in Alcoholic Anonymous. So I used to call it the Alcoholic Anonymous prayer, you know, which says, you know, Lord, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change 
courage to change the things that I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And basically, that's the way I have led my life. When there are things that I thought that I could change, then I address them. Not being concerned with what the consequences would be to me. As long as I was uh, polite, uh, I was not insulting, I addressed them and I addressed them head on. Uh, if it was clearly something I could not change, I may express, or I might have expressed that I do not like it, but then I would let it be. You know, it's funny because it it, it is the uh, AA or NA, it's the serenity prayer that's associated with recovery, but man, isn't that applicable to everybody? Isn't that, that's, that's honestly religious, non-religious, addict, non-addict, yes. we should all be paying a lot more attention to that. Yes. Something that you've introduced, which I'm really interested in learning a little bit more about, is you call it kind of the next phase of DEI. Yes. And it's the equity, inclusion, and individual engagement. Yes. Um, would you share more about this concept and why, and you said this earlier, the reframing is so important? First, uh, I think... Well, let me back up. One thing that impresses me is the that thing which we hold very dear in our article of independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All men being created equal is about diversity and equity and the unalienable rights and ability to pursue is about inclusion. So here in the Constitution, we have the, the basic. When I look at DEI, for me, diversity was important as a starting point because it helped one to identify very easily those individuals who are marginalized, be it uh, by race or by gender okay, or by sexual orientation, uh, diversity was easy. Diversity also had another important aspect because from a business perspective, we understood and recognized that diverse approaches to problems often would bring innovative solutions. So that was important. However, uh, <laughs> with affirmative action, perhaps no longer there, <laughs> now a number of mar marginalized individuals, certainly, and you cited this at the very beginning, very few at the top levels, but certainly there is entry now. And so now the issue is, now we are here, are we being treated as though we belong? So the two important things then become equity and inclusion. And equity is basically the responsibility of the leaders. They set the rules, the guidelines. How are we going to play? Inclusion is actually the responsibility of the frontline managers and co-workers who, by the behaviors they set, show that you're valued, 
they include you, etc. So those two are the pillars for things to work in any organization, equity and inclusion. One thing that is very clear, and particularly as things change, and that is doing things because it's morally correct, uh, morally the right thing to do, uh, is a question these days. But we do understand the following. And Gallup, who did uh, three decades of research, I think over 100,000 uh, employees were involved in about 64 different countries, 96 different industries, demonstrated that those companies that were in the top quartile with respect to employee engagement had 24 or greater percent profitability compared to those who were in the bottom quartile, had fewer retention and absenteeism problems, etc. And that has been accepted. The research done over so many years is quite robust. So in my view, the metric, instead of being how many people look like Frank Douglas are working here, the metric should be how many individuals working for you are engaged. So if I want to measure how well equity and inclusion are doing in any organization, the metric should be how many, what percentage of my employees are engaged. Hence, equity, inclusion, and individual engagement. And Gallup has shown that individual engagement translates into productivity. And everyone accepts productivity as a good metric. So, and I, and I realize this is, this might be broad because it could have different meanings in different settings, but is there a general way to understand engagement or to measure engagement? Yes. Yeah. I think general engagement is motivation. Are people motivated? And you can measure it a number of ways. Are people bringing forward ideas? Are people working uh, hard? Are they exceeding the um, the goals that you you ha have set? Uh, you know, uh, are, are they repeatedly performing greater than you expect? Are they coming forward with uh, ideas when not asked to to make things better? Uh, are they engaged? in making the organization better and more productive. So when I think about, uh, because we're shifting into the workspace, which I do think is a really important space, because when we think about uh, the state of the state of the world, right? Or the state of the US, I, as speaking from, from myself, from my own experience, can say that there was a lot that I grew up in New Hampshire, a very small, very white state. There was a lot that I didn't learn in school. And that's no, it's not a shark to my teachers. It's the way it was. And I think there's, there's a lot of issues right now with that as well. But the bottom line is I didn't start learning some of these lessons that I feel are insanely important until I was in my early thirties. And it's, the lessons came because I sought them out. Now, most people 
are not going to seek them out without additional motivation. So where do we capture people to help that continued learning other than work? So I think it is really important that we address that at work. Also, though, through work, when I think about inclusion, one of the challenges that I think about for inclusion in work is being able to cater to everybody without having information overload at the top. And I don't know, that's probably not a clear way to describe it, but everyone has individual needs, right? We can understand and accept that. Where does the line get drawn? And you can still call it inclusion. Uh, It's an interesting question. (laughs) Uh, I tend to focus on outcomes. And uh, so for any question, I ask myself the the question, (laughs) what is the outcome we would like? And let that lead me back to what are the behaviors that are needed to get uh, the best outcome? Who are the individuals who should be involved to get the best outcome? How should those individuals work together to get the best outcome? What are the materials uh, the individuals need to get the best outcome? Any particular individual, what type of help they would need for them to themselves as well as help the team get the best outcome? So that is how I come at it. So for any particular situation, the answers to to those sets of questions might change. But if you focus on the outcome, you begin to get, it begins to be manageable in terms of, you know, what is it you should be doing to include everyone? Because the reason to include is to get to your outcome and to be sure that that outcome is a productive outcome. And you get a productive outcome when everyone is motivated and engaged. And all the business leaders in the world should absolutely love that answer because that is one of the challenges that I've heard with them. And it's a fake challenge, to be honest, but is, is that I'm too busy focused on the company and the tasks we need to do. I can't focus on another, you know, DEI or anything like that. But just to reiterate in a different way, what you're saying is that, in fact, if you do pay attention to that, you will subsequently enhance your results. Yes. It's interesting because ever so often you'll see a company who will say, our employees are number one. Our employees are number one asset. And then you ask the question, well, what do you do for your employees? That employees would say (laughs) that you're treating them as though they're the number one asset. Yeah, I think there's a lot tied to uh, income. And at the end of the day, obviously, that is very important. But when you ask a person if they're happy with their job, that's not necessarily, that's not what you're going to think of. They may be happy with their paycheck, but are you happy with your job? It's a different question. Well, it's a very important question because we are missing something that's extremely important. And again, some of the work done uh, by, by Gallup, the relationship between being recognized and valued at work and one's sense of well-being, not just at work, but also outside of work and in the home. One of the most, uh, for me, eye-opening studies 
It was done by Boston University. It was released uh, around March of this year. Uh, Dr. Sheehy and uh, her group had followed um, uh, 20,000, I want to be sure I get the number correct, 20,000 uh, black women over 20 years. And they found the following. Those women who complained of suffering racism, discrimination at work or in interactions with uh, the police had 26% higher incidences of coronary artery disease than those who did not. And one of the things we actually do miss is how the stresses at work affect well-being and how that translates into life outside of work. Oh yeah, it's huge. We we spend so much time at work and yes. it's just it's it cannot be discounted the impact that a stressful work environment has. Mm-hmm. Thinking about this, um and and going back a little bit to what I mentioned about how when I started recognizing, when I started doing my own work and learning things, um I notice a lot now. I notice things that people don't even say they notice. But again, that's because I've done the work. So how do you, do you have thoughts on how we can help other people start to notice things that aren't affecting them? You know, one of the things is very uh, interesting, and I don't re- recall, you know, uh, who said it, but the general feeling uh, or the general statement is uh, that uh, if you tell me something, you know, I might remember it. If you show me it, uh, you know, I'll probably remember more of it. Uh, but if you have me do it, I will remember a lot of it. And in fact, my second book is being um, uh, republished. Uh, it was recommended to me, and uh, and I absolutely agree, because that's what the book is about, that I should change the title. And the new title, the present title is Addressing Systemic Discrimination by Reframing the Problem. The new title is Until You Walk in My Shoes with the subtitle, A Reframing Methodology to Overcome Discrimination. Now, the reason that is important is that, as a matter of fact, in the very first chapter, it's about walking in someone else's shoes. And the reframing process is also about walking in someone else's shoes. And one of the ways, you know, one of my concerns, if you like, that we are not going far uh, enough, and and DEI is doing a a wonderful job in raising awareness, etc., is that until people walk in someone else's shoes, they tend not to get the real ahas. So the reframing process uh, does a couple of things. One, it ensures that the individual is heard because this is one of the problems. When someone is aggrieved, they complain, complain, and generally, not generally, often they feel they're not being heard. And it's not that people aren't listening to their complaints, it's that they're not hearing it, they don't understand it. So we've set up a process in which an aggrieved individual in a very brief uh, one page, uh, most two pages, can describe, starting with, what is the outcome that they desire? What is the environment like that they're in? What is their situation? 
and what do they see is the problem. And we have them describe it in bullets so that they get a chance to step back a bit from the emotion. And, you know, you're too, too young to, to know this show, probably. Um, but you might have seen it. There used to be a detective show, and the detective Friday would say, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. So <laughs> to get individuals as much as possible, just give the facts. But then what we do is we look at that and we ask uh, uh, two sets of questions. One set is what are the issues around equity here? What are the issues around inclusion? And then we plot an equity inclusion culture matrix. And based on that, we try to identify where is that individual in that matrix. And given that, we then say, okay, what is a better problem to solve in order to get to the desired outcome? Now, if managers or others participate in this part of the exercise where they pull out the examples of equity, pull out the examples of inclusion, and they put it in the matrix, and then ask that question, what's a better problem to solve to get to the outcome? By doing that, they would have sort of walked in the shoes of the grieved individual. And once you have the better problem to solve, then we reframe uh, the original problem statement. First of all, I love the new name of the book, too. I think it's... it's Well, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. In, in fact, what I should, should add, you know, what is a better problem to solve? Well, one of the characteristics of a better problem to solve, it's a problem whose solution not only gets the aggrieved individual their desired outcome, but also provides benefit to the co-workers. That's a better problem to solve. So that you're not only improving your lot, but you're improving the culture, the environment that you're working in. That conversation is an easier one to have with a manager than the conversation which says, I'm being discriminated against and here are the reasons why. The conversation is, were we to do the following, I think this would improve productivity in our group, will increase motivation and engagement. And as a matter of fact, it would improve my own engagement because it, will, it would address a problem that I'm having. Like I, I'm getting this imagery of it being rather than a, a Band-Aid, it's a holistic tonic that is going to provide a multitude of solutions that maybe weren't even being considered before. Yes. Um, and as a matter of fact, this discussion of trying to find a better problem to solve helps that particular group to start thinking outside of the box. Mm -hmm and coming up with solutions that they would not normally have thought of. Well, on the topic of solutions, you are the CEO of Safe Haven Dialogues. Yes. And I'm curious, from your, from your seat at this table, what is your vision for that organization and for others moving forward? Uh, our vision for Safe Haven Dialogues uh, is that we bring the reframing process to as many individuals as possible. Uh, we think uh, any individual in a work situation 
who is in a conflicted situation, uh, be it based on discrimination, invariably conflict has to do invariably with conscious and unconscious biases, lack of understanding of the other individual, lack of understanding of what the environment uh, requires or what is in the environment that is impeding progress. So the, the process helps uh, to do that. So that is our mission, to really bring the reframing process to as many organizations as, as possible and to as many individuals as possible so that they begin to feel empowered uh, and also, as a result, improve their own well-being. Yes, empowered. I love that. I think that's so important for especially anybody that's been marginalized. It's so important to feel empowered and stop letting someone else's bias or negative opinion that is based in nothing dictate you know, your position in the world. Um, all right. So are you ready for the final three questions? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so the first one is I always ask uh, all the guests to share with us an action item. So we want to talk about and uncover situations and experiences, but obviously we want to be action oriented, which obviously you are. So what is one small thing that everyone doing uh, or that everyone listening can, can start taking action on today? Start thinking and attempting to walk in the shoes of the other individual. I love that. Uh, and then what are five words that in your current phase of life you connect with personally, you think are important? Uh, well, as I mentioned at the very beginning, I really think these two words uh, actually capture the essence of organizations, regardless of what they are, including the family. Equity, inclusion. My third word is reframing, because I think that helps to resolve conflicts. My fourth word, wouldn't surprise you, is courage. And my fifth word is well-being, because at the end of the day, and as you mentioned, we spend so much time at work and thinking about work. The impact on our well-being is very important. We need to pay attention to it. Absolutely. Where can everybody go to find Dr. Frank, get your books, connect with you, and stay in touch? Okay. The, the book is on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Uh, as I mentioned, the present book is addressing systemic discrimination by reframing the problem. Uh, we expect by the end of this month, actually, the new version, Until You Walk in My Shoes, is the title. The subtitle is A Reframing Methodology to Overcome Discrimination. They will be available on uh, Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Uh, you can also get it from our website, which is safehavendialogues-llc.com. Safehavendialogues-llc.com. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing. You told us so much about your story and your experience, which I really appreciate, first of all, and also the fact that you're still out here creating and trying to make change. You know, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, 60 years in, you're still going at it with the purpose of helping forward us in the world. I appreciate it. Well, 
we are all here to contribute. Yes. And I am just so happy that I'm privileged to be able to contribute somewhat. Thank you for listening in today. I hope this episode helped you see a new perspective. I believe through conversations just like this, we can all set fire to our ignorance and rise from those ashes together as better humans. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions that were expressed on today's episode, they're our own. We encourage you to do your own research and come to your own conclusions. Connect with us via the breakingbiaspodcast.com website, where you can find all of our social media links and all other important resources. Check the show notes for ways to connect with Dr. Frank. If you haven't already, please be sure to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Help us to expand the dialogue by sharing our show with others. And until next time, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversations going.